friends, as Vicky was sharing earlier, today marks the start of a new preaching series entitled Open. Today we're looking at the theme of Open to All. I'd ask you to bow your heads with me in a moment of prayer. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. That's the first line of a poem called Mending Wall by Robert Frost. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with it. It tells the story of two neighboring farmers who every springtime set about the work of repairing the wall of loose stones that marks the divide between their two properties. The one neighbor, the narrator of the poem, finds himself wondering why this task is required every year. What force of nature is at work that seems so intent on dismantling this wall? And then he finds himself questioning whether the wall itself is really necessary. When he dares to verbalize these questions, the other neighbor simply replies with a saying handed down from his father, good fences make good neighbors. On the face of it, there's a certain logic to that piece of conventional wisdom that good fences make good neighbors. Clear boundaries help to clarify what is yours and what is mine, where my responsibility ends and yours begins. Apart from anything else, this is a necessary part of healthy psychological development. Living without any boundaries is a sign of immaturity and is a sure recipe for relational disaster. And yet... The sad and inescapable truth is that the walls we construct that mark the dividing lines between ourselves and others so often cast a shadow in which things like ignorance, prejudice, suspicion, discrimination, and even hostility are allowed to grow. I witnessed this firsthand way back in 1991 in the Olympic Stadium in Rome. A mate and I were watching a soccer match between Roma and Atalanta, two top-flight Italian soccer clubs. When we bought the tickets, they were surprisingly inexpensive. When we got inside the stadium, we quickly understood why. Our seats were right on the very edge of the home team Roma supporters that were closest to the section of the visiting Atalanta fans, what I guess could be called the abuse zone. The two groups of supporters were separated by a massive 10 foot high and 6 inch thick perspex barrier that ran right down the seating of the stadium. Spaced along this perspex wall were dozens of policemen in full riot gear, I kid you not. Helmets, shields, batons at the ready. It was almost laughably ridiculous. This was a soccer match, for goodness sake, not a wall. 
At least that's what I thought. But what I witnessed that afternoon between those two sets of soccer fans really was no laughing affair. And you really didn't need to speak Italian to understand what was going on. The most provocative, unrestrained, shameless display of naked hatred that you could ever imagine. It was actually quite disturbing. After all, these were citizens of the same country. They spoke the same language. They ate the same food. They enjoyed the same wine. The only difference, they supported different soccer teams. This was the dividing wall between them, which doesn't sound like much. But as long as that wall was firmly entrenched in their consciousness and their sense of identity, symbolized so starkly by that perspex barrier and the riot police that divided the two groups from each other, so long as that wall was firmly entrenched, the dehumanizing hostility and hatred between them could continue unchecked. That's a graphic example from the world of sports, but in subtle or not so subtle ways, the same thing happens again and again in the personal domains of family and relationships and in the more public domains of politics, commerce, entertainment, and of course, religion. In fact, when it comes to the construction of dividing walls, organized religion has a great deal to answer for. It seems that one of its peculiar obsessions is trying to work out who's in and who's out, who's right and who's wrong, who's included and who's excluded, who's saved and who's damned. And when a religious dividing wall casts a shadow such that those on the other side can now be seen, not as they really are, but as the enemy. The wars that follow are always the bloodiest, precisely because they are fought in God's name, which is surely the ultimate blasphemy. Maybe you've experienced something like that. Maybe you've been wounded by a brand of religion that has judged you, rejected you, or somehow made you feel like you don't belong like you're on the wrong side of some dividing line because of what you do or don't believe. Maybe you're in church today or watching this online for the first time in a long time, and you're not even sure why you're here. For you especially, I want to say, there really is good news. You see, as Robert Frost put it in his poem, Something there is that doesn't love a wall. Something, or is it someone, that recognizes that whenever lines of division and exclusion are drawn, it results in the diminishment of everyone concerned. Someone who understands that the tendencies to narrow tribalism, nationalism, and sectarianism are really fueled by insecurity and fear. Someone who longs for all people, and especially those 
who are religiously inclined to be released from the impossible burden of trying to work out who's in and who's out, and instead to discover the wide open freedom that comes from compassionate, open-hearted, open-minded acceptance of all. The story is told of some soldiers in the First World War who carried one of their slain comrades to a nearby church in a rural part of France. There they asked the priest if they could, if he would bury their friend in the church graveyard. The priest asked if the dead man was a baptized member of the Roman Catholic Church. When the soldiers replied that they didn't know, the priest said that he was very sorry, but in that case, he couldn't allow the man to be, married, to be buried in that graveyard. And so with heavy hearts, the soldiers dug a grave outside the graveyard fence where they buried their dead comrade. Some months later, they happened to be in that same region and so decided to visit the grave of their friend. But as they looked for his grave outside the graveyard fence, they could find no trace of it. Confused, they approached the priest and he replied, After you left, I was greatly troubled that night by my refusal to bury your friend in our graveyard. So the next morning I got up and with my own hands moved the graveyard fence to include the grave of your friend. That's a little bit of what we're hoping to do over these next five weeks of this epiphany preaching series called Open, to move the fence, as it were, if not to dismantle it completely, and so to embrace the very things that have caused so many people to feel excluded from the church. In boldly declaring that our faith is indeed open to things like doubt, reason, different interpretations and mercy, we're not just trying to be politically correct. We're actually reaffirming a core value of the gospel of Jesus Christ, namely its expansive embrace in truly being open to all. Indeed, from the very first parts of the Jesus story, this is a consistent and recurring theme. Our scripture reading today is a classic case in point. It tells the well-known story of the visit of these strange travelers from the east who came to pay homage to the newborn Christ child, guided by the light of a star, bearing their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We all know that the story of the Magi or the wise men is a colorful and indispensable part of every children's Christmas nativity play, and how wonderful that is. But as such, it can easily slip into the category of a fairy story that we don't have to take that seriously. I mean, let's be honest. Wise men following a star who actually stopped to ask for directions? (laughs) Who are you kidding here? Gary Larson has a deliciously irreverent far side cartoon of the story that I love. 
It shows three wise men with presents in their hands at the door of a house where an angel is standing with a fourth wise man slinking away. And the caption reads, you can't see it, but the caption reads, unbeknownst to most theologians, there was a fourth wise man who was turned away for bringing a fruitcake. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is that the wise men were not turned away, certainly not as Matthew tells the story. Whatever we make of their story, Matthew included it in his account of the birth of Christ. In fact, for Matthew, he uses the Magi to highlight the meaning of Christ's birth. Their story contained for him critical truth without which, without which, we cannot understand the meaning of the coming of Christ into the world. And so this morning, let me highlight very briefly just three things about this story that underscore the gospel truth of what the coming of Christ means and his openness to all. Firstly, the Magi were foreigners of a different faith and philosophical outlook. They didn't follow the guidance of the Torah, the teachings of the Jewish faith, but rather the guidance of the stars. Some biblical scholars think that they belonged to a priestly class of Zoroastrianism, an ancient Persian religion we can't know for sure. But we do know that as Matthew tells the story, God used their faith tradition and their faith practices, including their astrological inclinations to lead them to Christ. That God used that. And not to convert them, but for them to become an instrument in the conversion of others. Isn't that amazing? And a witness to the expansive reach of the coming of Christ into the world. That leads to the second point I want to highlight. These foreigners with the strange religious ideas and practices that enabled them to follow the stars, these foreigners were in fact the first gospel evangelists. Did you know that? They were the very first ones to share the good news that Jesus had been born. And they did so in the most gutsy way. They went straight to the king, to Herod, and told him that another king had been born and that they had come to pay homage to this other king. In other words, Herod, he's more important than you are. Kings don't take kindly to that sort of thing. No wonder that when it was time for the Magi to head on home, they gapped it via a different road without swinging by Herod's palace. Maybe they knew that they'd be swinging from a gallows if they did. They became courageous evangelists of the good news that Christ the King had been born, these foreigners. The third point I want to mention 
is that the experience, the essential experience of the Magi, of being aliens in a foreign land, is the exact same experience that came to Jesus as a consequence of their evangelism. We read that his family had to flee to Egypt as political refugees to escape the murderous rage of King Herod. In other words, according to Matthew, Jesus' formative years as a young boy were spent growing up in a foreign land as an alien, a refugee, an outsider. Maybe that's why he showed such great compassion to outsiders throughout his ministry. He knew what it felt like to be one. The point of all of this Well, it's simply to say that the ridiculous ways in which we construct dividing walls between insiders and outsiders is pretty much dismantled right at the very start of Jesus' life. That idea that there are those who are in and those who are out is exposed for the utterly ridiculous idea that it is. In the eyes of God. Something there is. That doesn't love a wall. It's the truth of the gospel. That declares that the love of God. Is open to all. It's the truth of the gospel. That declares that there is a place for you. Even if it feels like you don't fit in. And that you don't belong. There is a place for you. There is a place for everyone. And so let me close. Robert Fulham tells a great story about an experience he once had with a large group of elementary school children. He was organizing them to play a game of giants, dwarves, and wizards, a large-scale group-based version of rock, paper, scissors. You know the game. So you've got to decide if you're a dwarf or a giant or a wizard, and you know how it works. Well, the children had been divided into two groups, and more or less understood how the game worked. Their excitement was building for the game to begin, and so he yelled out, you have to decide now what you are, a giant, a dwarf, or a wizard. As the groups huddled in frenzied, whispered consultation, He felt a tug on his pants leg. A little girl stood there looking up at him and asked in a small, concerned voice, where do the mermaids stand? (laughs) There was a long pause. Where do the mermaids stand, he asked. Yes, said the little girl. You see, I'm a mermaid. But there are no such things as mermaids, he replied. Oh, yes, there are, said the little girl, and I am one. Let me read Robert Fulham's own words as he finishes the story. This brave little girl did not relate to being a giant, a dwarf, or a wizard. She knew what she was, a mermaid, and was not about to leave the game and go and stand against the wall where a loser would stand. She intended to participate wherever mermaids fitted into the scheme of things without giving up dignity or identity. 
She took it for granted that there was a place for mermaids and I would know just where. Which set me thinking, where do the mermaids stand? All the mermaids, all those who are different, who do not fit the norm, who are outsiders, who do not accept the available boxes and pigeonholes. Answer that question and you can build a school, a church, a nation, and even a world on it. What was my answer at that moment? Every once in a while, I say the right thing. The mermaid stands right here by the king of the sea, says I. So there we stood, hand in hand, watching the giants and dwarves and wizards as they rushed by in wild disarray. He concludes the story by saying, it's not true, by the way, that mermaids do not exist. I know at least one personally. I've even held her hand. Friends, whoever you are, wherever you've come from, whatever has brought you here today, hear the good news. There's a king that says to you, your place is right here next to me. It's true. His love and his grace is open to all. Amen.